We're going to do a message this morning entitled this, Self-Evident Truths. Of course, you are familiar with that phrase. Thomas Jefferson used it in our Declaration of Independence. We're going to expound upon that this morning. Most important message we ever preach here. Done variations of it from time to time, but we are glad that you are with us this morning, and we pray that there will be countless others that follow us after the fact either online or in some of our satellite congregations around the country. So let's get started. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're looking at the reason we are all here. Quite frankly, Christianity has nothing to do with emotions, although people sometimes get emotional in their faith. Christianity has nothing to do about feelings, although some people have strong feelings when they read the Bible or talk about their faith. Christianity is based upon fact. The empty tomb is why we're here. And if the tomb is not empty, then we have no reason to be here. But if the tomb is empty, then that means Jesus is the Lord. You know, growing up in a Baptist church, I was often talked or taught about faith. In fact, that's one of the most common words we hear growing up around church. But no one ever defines faith. We so often identify faith with feelings or emotions or crossing our fingers and hoping something to be true. Faith is not hoping for something. Faith is not wishing that something is true. According to Hebrews 11, which is a chapter called the Faith Hall of Fame, it begins with the definition of faith. It says that faith is established or built upon two things. Faith is built upon substance. That word literally means something measurable, tangible, observable, or solid. And faith is built upon evidence. That is a legal term. Defined means evidence that if given in a court of law would be sufficient to lead to a conviction. So our faith in Christ, the Christian faith, is based upon substance and evidence. As a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say many times before, the reason the stone was rolled away was not so Jesus could get out. The reason the stone was rolled away is so that the world could see that the tomb was empty. That is the facts of our faith. That is apologetics. Every time Jesus appeared to one of his disciples after the resurrection, he always asked for something to eat. Well, what? Was he a Baptist? Was he hungry all the time? No. He was proving that he was physically risen from the dead because a spirit cannot eat bread or fish or the like. The great C.S. Lewis who was a brilliant man, but a skeptic. He examined the evidence. He didn't want to be anybody's fool. He didn't want to be a sucker. He examined the evidence and wound up concluding that Christianity was, in fact, true. C.S. Lewis, brilliant man, brilliant resource for apologetics, made this statement, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if it's true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Ladies and gentlemen, I would say that the problem with Christianity in America is Christ and the facts of our faith is only moderately important as we have far more church members across this nation than we have actual Christ followers across these 50 states. Well, in our short time this morning, we are going to answer two questions, and we are going to examine, in fact, if the facts actually point to the validity, to the truthfulness of our claims of Christianity. Number one, does God exist? 
Well, the first testimony comes from the psalmist. David said that the heavens, in other words, everywhere you look, declares the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Ladies and gentlemen, everywhere you look, when you go outside today, when you leave this building, and you look up into the sky, and you see the blue, and you see the clouds, and you see trees, and you see grass growing, it speaks of the evidence of a Creator. When you go outside tonight and you're watching the fireworks and you look up into the night sky and you see the stars out there and you recognize just the depth and the size of the cosmos, it speaks, it screams of the existence of a Creator. When you gaze in the mirror in the morning and you're putting on your makeup, ladies, or if you're shaving your face, men, when you look at the complexity of all that's there, it screams of the existence of a Creator. We know that something built needs a builder, something made needs a maker, something baked needs a baker, and something created needs a Creator. There is not one single case anywhere ever where something came from nothing or life came from non-life, yet our science textbooks tell us that evolution is the answer for everything. As a matter of fact, it is illogical to conclude that all there is in order and in natural law was the conclusion of a series of random chances. You've heard me use this illustration before when Cindy and I were in Florida a couple of years ago. We traveled, we literally speaking, in a new city every Friday and every Saturday as we were going around the state. And of course, whenever we had a chance, we went to the beach. My wife loves the beach. She's a beach gal. I'm a golf course guy. The mountains can just go away as far as I'm concerned, unless we're there in the summer to play golf in the cool of the day. But anyway, we were walking across one beach. I forget where it was. It may have been the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic Coast. I don't know. But we came across this, this circle of seashells. And of course, being the man of the home, I explained to my wife how they got there. I said, baby, over millions of years... The, the waves came up, and the waves came out, and the waves came up, and the waves came out, and the waves came up, and the waves came out, and by random chance, this perfect circle of seashells was left on the beach. Of course, this isn't the first time she's called me an idiot. Actually, it happens daily. But of course, you know, that is nonsense. Obviously, that is intentional. That is by order. That is by design. Why in the world do we think that something as complicated as just the human eye could be by random chance? Of course, it's impossible. Brilliant Harvard scientist George Wald, 1967 Nobel Prize winner for medicine, wrote an article that was published in 1954 in the Scientific American, said this. Now listen to this brilliant scientist. And understand, science is supposed to be testing a theory, experimenting, observing the results, and trying to establish something as a repeatable scientific fact. Now, here's Wald. The reasonable view, as far as the origin of life, was to believe in spontaneous generation, that everything came out of nothing. The only alternative to evolution is a single primary act of supernatural creation. I agree. There is no third position. For this reason, many scientists a century ago chose to regard the, to regard the belief in spontaneous generation as a philosophical necessity. It is a symptom of the philosophical poverty of our time that this necessity is no longer appreciated. Most modern biologists have reviewed with satisfaction the downfall of the spontaneous generation hypothesis 
Folks, spontaneous generation has been proven scientifically to be nonsense. It is non-science. It is not true. So spontaneous generation is another word for evolution. So evolution is not true. Yet, Mr. Wald said, unwilling to accept the alternative belief in special creation, we are left with nothing. Now get this next statement. One has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet, he goes on amazingly to say, yet here we are as a result, I believe in that which I know to be impossible. Folks, that is not science. That is blind faith. And understand, hey, we've got school teachers that are wanting to do the right thing. And they get in their class and they open a textbook and they teach what's written in the textbooks. And they just trust by faith that it's true. Understand, these are the men that write the textbooks. And they know it's nonsense. But understand, if you accept the idea that there is a creator, then obviously we will one day give an account for our behavior. And that is something they refuse to accept because they want to live life exactly as they want to live life. This man, another brilliant scientist, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA. Now, DNA is, 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 are those volumes of information contained inside a, a, a cell. As a matter of fact, you know, Darwin theorized that there was a simple cell. It was just very simple, could come together out of nothing. Well, as they have continued to study, they realize that even the most so-called simple cells has literally volumes and volumes of libraries worth of, of information coded inside each cell. And he said, we now know that it's impossible that even a simple cell happened by chance. In fact, I'll go further than that. We know that there's a higher intelligence in the universe. Well, we would all agree with everything that he's just said. Logically, you would go, well, perhaps. Perhaps the Bible is true. Maybe that's the explanation. Well, again, this brilliant scientist said this. We know that life didn't begin on earth. That's impossible. Well, what's your theory, Sir Francis Crick? Well, we know that there was higher intelligence on a distant planet. That planet was going to be destroyed. So they modified their DNA and put it on meteors and bacteria and sent it out to the universe. One of those meteors happened to accidentally land on planet Earth, and that's how life began on planet Earth. No, Mr. Crick, that is not how life got to planet Earth. That's how Superman got to planet Earth, according to Marvel Comics. The only eyewitness gives testimony that in the beginning it was God that created the heaven and the earth. Understand, God gave legal testimony as to how everything began. And through faith, what is faith? Substantial evidence and testimonial evidence. The tangible and the testimonial together, from that we understand that the worlds were framed, let me say ordered and organized and designed and put together so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, out of everything came out of nothing. God spoke and it was. Now why is this so important? Well, for a century, scientists tried to say what was called the steady state theory. 
Well, they theorized the universe has always existed. And no question about where it came from to begin with. But if it always existed, then there's no need for a creator because it wasn't created. However, Einstein discovered that that was not true. Science itself proves that there was, in fact, an origin. They call it the Big Bang. Now, here are what agnostic scientists actually have to say. This is Robert Jastrow. Again, he's an agnostic. He's a questioner. He's not a believer. Yet the scientific evidence compels him to admit this. He says astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly by an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Arno Penzis, another Nobel Prize laureate winner, this time for physics, said this, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang, is exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. And again, Robert Jastrow said, For the scientist who has lived by faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians that have been sitting there for centuries. Science leads you to believe that the explanation given in Scripture is, in fact, the true explanation. As a matter of fact, if the book of Genesis was correct, then here's what you would expect to find among the following evidence. Number one, you'd find whole kinds abruptly appear in the fossil record without transitional forms. Mr. Darwin theorized that over the next 150 to 200 years, man would discover countless transitional fossils in the fossil record. Well, Stephen Gould, another Harvard professor, uh, came up with a theory called punctuated equilibrium. He said this, the extreme rarity of transitional forums, uh, excuse me, forms in the fossil record persist as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. Let me explain what inference means. Made up. However reasonable, not the evidence found in the fossil record. Now, wait a minute. I thought science was supposed to be based upon evidence. We fancy ourselves as the only true students of life's history, yet we preserve our favorite account of evolution. We defend what we know is made up. We view our data as so bad that we, what? Never see the very process we profess to study. So in other words, those evolutionary trees that are in our children's textbooks where they say, oh, it started here with a cell and it ends here with a horse. Started here with a cell, it ends here with a human. Started here with a cell, it ends over here with a cow. All they find is horses humans and cows. They find nothing in between. It's all made up. 
and they know that it's not true, yet they insist on teaching it anyway. As George Wald said a while ago, the only alternative is creation. If there's creation, there's God, and we cannot accept the idea that there's God. But the evidence says there is. Second thing we'd find if Genesis was in fact true is evidence of rapid burial and fossilization. In other words, evidence of a global catastrophe. Dead things don't become fossils. How many of you have ever been driving down the road and you hit a fossilized armadillo? <laughs> Never has happened. Why? Because dead things get eaten, dead things rot, dead things wash away. For something to become fossilized, they must be rapidly buried. It's amazing that all over the planet they have fossils like this one. And what you see on the screen is a fish eating another fish. Buried so quickly that even though fish don't generally chew, they swallow whole. Even though, uh, even, even though he was in the process of, of swallowing his lunch, literally in a second, he was frozen in time because he was overwhelmed and consumed by sediment so quickly and so abruptly. Almost as if the fountains of the earth broke open as was described in the book of Genesis with Noah's flood. The third thing we would expect to see is evidence of a global flood. What you see on the screen is a 34-foot fossilized sea creature found in the plains of western Kansas. I don't know how many of you are looking for beach property in western Kansas, but if you are, come see me. I'm sure I can find you some. Well, why would there be a 34-foot sea creature found in the plains of western Kansas? Well, either a caveman from a couple of million years ago thought he would play a great practical joke on us today, or, in fact, western Kansas at one time was covered by water. As a matter of fact, Sir Edmund Hillary, when scaling Mount Everest in 1953, found fossilized clams at 24,000 feet. Why in the world would there be fossilized clams at 24,000 feet? Well, once again, perhaps it was a caveman playing a practical joke on us. Or perhaps this just might be evidence that at one time the entire planet was covered by water. But another scientist, and by the way, these men are brilliant. They know answers. They've been taught answers. They've got great intellect but they just have sinful, wicked hearts that refuse to accept the truth that there is a God. But Richard Lewinton, in an article uh, uh, correctly, uh, appropriately titled Billions and Billions of Demons, wrote this. He said, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for the unsubstantiated, because we said so, stories, because we have a prior commitment. We have a commitment to materialism. In other words, there cannot be a spiritual answer. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are focused by a priori adherence 
a preconceived conclusion or disposition to material answers to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute necessity because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The answer cannot be God, even though the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that there is a creator, that there is a God. What is the second question that we must address if this is true? If there is a God, who is he? Well, there's been a lot of men that have come to the planet, recorded history, that have claimed to have access to God, that have talked about heaven, that have talked about God, but there's only been one who came claiming to be God and then promising that he would prove that he was God. Jesus said, you're looking for some sort of evidence, you're looking for some sign of sign, you're looking for some miracle. I guess raising Lazarus from the dead wasn't good enough. I guess walking not around the Sea of Galilee, but across the Sea of Galilee wasn't good enough. So he said, I'm going to give this wicked, adulterous generation one proof. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so shall I be in the grave for three days and three nights. But on day four, I won't be. Day four, I'll be standing right here. This wasn't missed on his audience as the Sanhedrin went to Pilate after his crucifixion, saying that the deceiver said that he was going to be resurrected. Hey, they're going to try to steal his body. You've got to help us make sure that tomb is, is sealed shut through four days. After four days, it doesn't matter. All they had to do to disprove Christ's claims was on day four, drag his dead, lifeless body out of the tomb, show it to all the people that had been followers, and he would have been proved to be a fraud and a liar, and we would have never heard the name of Jesus after that. Well, we know what happened. We know the tomb was empty. In fact, they know the tomb was empty. I'll give you some additional evidence here in a moment. But they have four explanations. One is the swoon theory, that after they put him in the tomb, he got better. Now, according to what the Scripture says, the Roman officers who were experts in death, they had mastered this art of crucifixion and torture. First, Jesus was beaten 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails that had barbs at the end of each of the nine lashes that would, if a, a, a skilled executioner could sink those into the skin and then jerk them back out, where it literally pulls the flesh off the body and exposes the bone structure underneath. As a matter of fact, Isaiah said that Jesus would be beaten to hamburger, beaten beyond recognition as a human being. So he had 39 times 9, a total of 351 lashes with a cat of nine tails. He was beaten with fists by Roman soldiers. He had a crown of thorns shoved down on his head. I've got one back in my office. My staff tries to slap it on me every time I take a nap, actually. But it's got barbs on it about an inch long. It's not like a sticker bush. This thing itself shoved down on your head 
could kill you if it penetrated the right spot. He was nailed to a cross. He had a spear shoved up underneath his rib cage, piercing his heart. There was no doubt he was dead. Now you're telling me that they wrapped him up, they put him in a garden tomb, and over the next three days he got better. Got two doctors on the front row. How likely is that, doctor? Doctor, non-existent. Yeah, yeah, three, do three doctors. Oh, three doctors. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't look to my left. You shouldn't be sitting on the left, David. This is the right. No. Well, I guess this is, okay, whatever. Okay. We got three doctors. How likely? Well, how likely is it? Not at all. Now, what's even better is the idea is you have a watch of Roman soldiers outside the tomb. And let's say Jesus did get better. And he was able to roll a three-ton stone away from the door. Yet amazingly, those soldiers outside didn't hear a three-ton stone being rolled away from the door. Folks, there is nothing about this. In fact, this theory is absurd on its face. There's a second theory. I love this one. They forgot where they buried him. Now understand, Jesus was public enemy number one by the Sanhedrin. And because the Sanhedrin were complaining about him, he became a thorn in the side of the Roman government. Well, after some three-plus years of being a thorn in their side, they finally succeeded in having him killed. And they were so excited about being, about being finished with this problem that they buried him and then forgot where they buried him. Folks, the Sanhedrin were the most brilliant men in Israel. They had a comprehensive education, not just theologically. And the Roman soldiers were not the keystone cops. They were the most powerful military on the planet. You're going to tell me that they finally did away with public enemy number one after three years of being a thorn in their flesh, and they buried him, and then they forgot where they buried him. That explanation as absurd as the first explanation was, that one is equally absurd as it's laughable. The third possible explanation is certainly unlikely. In fact, they said that the uh, apostles stole his body. Now, by the way, let me just point out, there is no question that the body was missing. He's not there. Body was gone. In his, what was called, Dialogue with Trypho, Justin Martyr, a first century Christian that lived in Ephesus, around the year 150, had a series of debates or dialogues with this Jew who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He recorded it in what was called the Dialogue with Trypho. There is no question about this theory that Jesus' body had been stolen. But the fact is, the body was missing. Nobody knew where it was. Now, we know from Scripture that the apostles themselves admitted as to how self-seeking and self-serving they were. They were debating among each other because they were assuming that Jesus was going to fulfill the Zechariah 14 promise and he was going to just sit on the throne of David and rule and reign the world. And they started arguing amongst themselves over who would have a higher position in the kingdom, who would sit on his right hand and on his left hand. And then, of course, the night of his arrest, when they came to Gethsemane, 
The book of Mark records that one of them was so scared that he ran away. They grabbed him by the neck of the, uh, by the nap of the neck of his garment. He ran away naked. Now, if you're running anywhere naked, it's either 1970 and you're listening to the, to the song Streaker, or you are scared to death because most of us would prefer to don clothes when we go out in public. So obviously, they were petrified. They all abandoned Jesus, with the exception of John, who was there at the crucifixion. The rest of them were in hiding. Now, when Jesus was still alive, and they had this faint hope that he was going to literally throw off the Roman yoke of oppression and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, as David had had it established originally, if they didn't have the courage to stand for him when he was alive, why on earth would they fake his resurrection. And then once they were caught, all of them wound up dying horrible martyrs' deaths. They were impaled. They were beheaded. They were speared. They were uh, nailed with arrows. They were crucified upside down. All they had to do, any of them, was just to admit, hey, we stole the body. He's not really risen. And they would have let them go. Now, our friend, the great uh, apologist, J. Warner Wallace, says in his presentation that there are three reasons that men would conspire for something like this. One would be fame. Well, they didn't get that. One would be great wealth. Well, they didn't get that. One would be a sexual motive, the adoration of women. Well, they didn't get that. Instead, all they got was hatred, living in caves, poverty, and ultimately Horrible martyrs' deaths. Now, why in the world would they do those things if they had made it up and it wasn't true? You can look in the Middle East and you see a lot of people are willing to die for a lie, but they don't know that it's not true. But who in the world would die for something that they know is a lie when all they would have to do is tell the truth and they would be set free? But I want you to know, audience, and growing up a Baptist, I was never taught most of these things. I was just taught, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. And of course, fortunately for my family, that was correct. The Bible is the right answer. Jesus is the Lord. He did re resurrect from the dead. Fortunately, what I was taught was true. But if I'd gone to a college campus and a professor had challenged me on any of these things, I would have been standing there with lint in my pockets. I would have had no answer. Let me share these truths with you. All the extra biblical evidence about Jesus actually being risen from the dead. The Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus that lived from, one, excuse me, from 56 to 120 recorded what was called the annals of history for the Roman Empire. And he said this about Jesus. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. They were called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for a moment again broke out not only in Judea, which was where it all originated, but even as far as Rome. This Roman historian said Jesus had been put to death 
by uh, Pontius Pilate, and we thought we had checked this problem for a while, but it didn't. It exploded after that. Not the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, extra-biblical history. Matter of fact, he added about the faithfulness of Christians. He said mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered from the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Christians in the first century were dipped in oil, hung on posts, and set on fire to serve as illumination for Nero. Now let me tell you, we've got Christians that won't stand in front of a corrupt mayor at a city council meeting and say that the LGBT lifestyle is actually sinful. We shouldn't be celebrating it. We've got Christians that are afraid they can't post something on social media or they might face the wrath of the cancel culture. Hey, first century, these people were sewn up in animal skins, thrown to the lions, and they were ripped to pieces in these bloody skins. They would be burnt alive before they would consider recanting their faith in Jesus Christ. Is there any wonder why Christianity meant something in that first and second century? It was the testimony of those that called themselves Christ followers. That was so compelling. Pliny the Younger, an imperial magistrate who served under Emperor Trajan, wrote this in a personal correspondence to the emperor in 112 A.D. about Christians. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, where they would sing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as if Christ was a god. Then the modern-day Jimmy Fallon or Stephen Colbert of their time, a Greek uh, a Syrian, a, a Hellenized Syrian comic named Lucian said this as he was mocking them. The Christians, you know, worship a man even to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they were all actually brothers from the moment that they were converted, and they deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws." Ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't have the Bible, if you went to extra-biblical history accounts, you would find these truths about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. His existence is irrefutable. Those that say his life was made up are fools. These truths about Jesus... His crucifixion, the fact that His disciples believed that He had risen from the dead, that they were willing to die for their belief, that Christianity spread worldwide. They refused to worship false gods, that He claimed to be the Messiah. By the way, that He was a miracle worker was admitted in these extra-biblical accounts. Now remember why Jesus rebuked the Jews of His day. He rebuked them for not recognizing the prophecies that he was, in fact, fulfilling. Now, in the 1800s, there was an ultra-Orthodox Jew by the name of Alfred Eidersham. 
It's from his work that we know so much about the Jewishness of Christianity. He wrote a long, some 700 plus page work called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, as well as considerable other works. Eidersham went through the Old Testament and identified 456 prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. Prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. Now, in 1963, a statistician by the name of Peter Stoner looked at eight of those 456 prophecies. These were very specific, singular prophecies that eliminated most. For example, the prophecy saying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem eliminated anyone who wasn't born in Bethlehem. The prophecy that said he would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver is a very specific prophecy that eliminated anyone that wasn't betrayed for the price of 30 pieces of silver. Well, the statistical probabilities of one man who just happened to be so unlucky as to live at this time and fulfill these eight prophecies and then wound up being called the Messiah, wound up being crucified. The statistical probabilities of this happening by chance is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And that's a big number. It's more than I have in the checking account. What does that mean? Well, if you took a landmass the size of the state of Texas and you filled it full of silver dollars two feet deep, that would be that number. And if you took one silver dollar and painted a red X on the front of it, say with a magic marker or with fingernail polish, and you tossed it into the middle of the state of Texas and blended it around for a while, mixed it up, and then someone hung by a helicopter and blindfolded reached into the middle of the state of Texas and by chance happened to grab that one silver dollar that had the red X on it, that is the statistical probability of an individual just by chance happening to fulfill those eight prophecies. Now, if we double that and we went to 16 prophecies, then the number grows exponentially. As a matter of fact, you would have silver dollars, a lot of them you would have a ball of silver dollars 30 times the size of the diameter from the earth to the sun. In other words, you would have 2,788,000,000 miles of silver dollars in a circumference. And let's say you took a red silver dollar and painted an X on it. And let's say you tossed it into that ball 2,788,000,000 miles wide in circumference, a circle. And you mix that circle around, then you drop by helicopter into the middle of that circle of, of, of silver dollars, and you blindfold and reach down, and by chance happen to grab that silver dollar. That is the statistical odds. If a man accidentally, by chance, happened to be so unlucky as to fulfill 16 of those 456 prophecies. Are you still with me? Okay. Now, what if one man happened to be unlucky enough to be born in Bethlehem, 
happened to be unlucky enough to have this crazy guy dressed in camel hair and everything saying, uh, prepare for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, uh, happened to be betrayed by a buddy for 30 pieces of silver, and 48 total prophecies of the 456. It's only about 10% of all the prophecies. Then those statistical odds would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, just in passing, understand that the French mathematician Emile Borel said that once something reaches 1 in 10 to the 50th, it becomes statistically impossible. And if you want to know what this number would be, they say, I haven't personally counted, so I'll trust them, that the number of electrons in our universe is 1 in 10 to the 80th. So this number is 1 in 10 to the 157th. So imagine if you took, not a silver dollar, but an electron. And you painted a little bitty X on the electron. And you put it in a mass of electrons that was 1 times 10,000 billion, 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 billion universes. And you toss that electron into the middle of these universes and you mix them up for a while. Then you dropped in by helicopter with really tiny tweezers and you grab that one electron that happened to have the red X. That is the odds of one man accidentally fulfilling 48 prophecies. So what are the odds of a man fulfilling 456 out of 456? Ladies and gentlemen, the reason I'm going to this, I was never, I grew up in a home. I, I had the Bible taught me literally while I was in my mother's womb. I have that grounded on Scripture. I really couldn't define what faith really meant until the last 15 years digging in and studying it for myself. And understand that well, the point I'm making here is there is not a single more established fact in all of human history that Jesus is the Lord. And as we are celebrating the 4th of July, as we talked about self-evident truths to begin this talk, Understand that the reason it is dated July 4th, 1776 is because they counted time as beginning from the birth of our Savior. Why is He so important? Because He is the Lord. When they came back together and authored the Constitution, it was dated from two dates. It was dated from the birth of their country and from the birth of our Savior in the year of our Lord, 1787. Even Thomas Jefferson, who allegedly is the least religious of our founding fathers, dated all of his official correspondence in this way, in the year of our Lord Christ. So, getting back to our original question, Christianity is false, it's of no importance, but if it's true, it's of infinite importance. This is Muhammad's tomb. Pretty significant influence in the world. Yet he is still there. This is Buddha's tomb. Another considerable religious leader in the world. Yet he is still there. This is Confucius' tomb. Another significant leader in the world. Well, don't all religions, aren't they all trying to get us to the same place? 
There's only one that's true. Well, how are we supposed to know? Because the tomb is empty. He is risen. The reason He is not there is because He is, in fact, the Lord. So is it true? Well, yes, we have strong evidence that there is a Creator. And there is strong evidence that Jesus is God, as He was declared to be so through the resurrection. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what you have just heard are the facts of our faith. But James tells us that even the demons know what the facts are. And you can believe about something, or you can trust in something. You all, I'm sure, are familiar with air travel. Most of you have probably flown at some point in time. You can believe that airplanes fly because you've seen them fly. You've talked to people that have flown in them before. However, until you actually walk down the jetway, get into the plane, get into a seat and buckle it, they close the door and take off. That is the difference between knowing that airplanes fly and you actually trusting your life in an airplane and to the pilots to fly that plane. Now we come to our landing. Paul had been in jail now for a couple of years. He was in this beautiful seaside city. It was one of the Roman capitals called Caesarea in honor of Caesar. Only this was Caesarea by the sea on the Mediterranean Sea. Just about, oh, I don't know, 40 miles or so west of Jerusalem. And while in prison there, the governors had changed on two occasions. And Paul had made an appeal to Caesar. And there was a new Jewish king, King Herod Agrippa, that was visiting the Roman governor as political leaders often do. And while there, the Roman governor asked for Herod's help, since Herod was of Jew, Jewish background in his faith, and the Roman governor did not have any charges to send with Paul to Rome. Paul had been arrested. The Sanhedrin was insisting upon a trial. Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. Well, what is he charged with? No, no. So the governor asked for Herod to listen to Paul and see if they could come up with some violations. Well, Paul presented the gospel. And of course, Herod knew these things. Being in the political family, he was well aware of the Messiah and what had taken place. He was well aware of these new sect of, of Jews that called themselves the Nazarenes, that called themselves the Way. And Paul, standing before Herod, talked about all these prophecies that Jesus had fulfilled in the Old Testament, the same ones that Alfred Eidersham had identified. And Paul said, this is the Messiah. He said, Herod, I speak forth the words of truth and soberness, for you know, King, that these things happen. You read the news. You watched Fox News. You read the paper. You know all this was going on. And I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from you, for this thing was not done in a corner. It wasn't done in hiding. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
Jesus fulfilled those 456 prophecies. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Jesus rose from the dead. That's why I'm standing here. I was trying to arrest Christians. I hated Christians. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I worked for the high priest. And I was on the road to Damascus. I got knocked to the ground by a bright light and came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. I know it's true. Look in the Bible. You know it's true. Herod, what are you going to do about it? And Herod said, too much of a price to pay. I've got influence. I've got power. I've got money. I can't become a Christian. I'd lose my position as the king of the Jews. Almost, Paul. Almost. But no. The only other option when faced with these facts is what Thomas did. Because you remember Thomas too said, after his buddies said that Jesus had appeared to them in the upper room, Thomas said, you're crazy. No way it happened. I saw him. His body, he was dead. He was beaten. He was bloody. He was lifeless. He was dead. You guys can't get, unless Jesus stands right here in front of me and I can reach out and touch the, the nail prints in his hands, I'm not believing you crazy people. Well, a week later, Jesus stood right before Thomas. Just like Herod was presented with the evidence and said, no. Thomas, when he came face to face with the evidence, fell to his knees and cried out, my Lord and my God. We have self-evident truth. Jesus is the Lord. But even now, He will not force Himself on you. It's up to you, each and every one of us, to make that decision for themselves. On this Independence Day, I ask you this question. Do you know? Do you know? Has there been a time where you've fallen on your knees and cried out, My Lord and my God?